involved. So, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we trust God will add a blessing to the reading. Now last week, no, uh, not last week, the week before, Noel did an introduction to Thessalonians and he covered chapter one. Now we get into a bit of the meat of the book. And verse one, Paul is saying, you know us, brethren, we came to you and it was not in vain. What does he mean by not in vain? Well, the word that's used is kenos. And there are three words that are translated not in vain um, throughout the Bible, but kenos is the one which is more often translated empty. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter, and you don't need to turn these words up. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, we can see the context of the word. And it said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. What they're meaning is that when we came to you, it wasn't empty, but it also means they didn't come empty handed. Often when missionaries go into hostile environments, they go to a different culture. There's different food and challenge and relationships. And they go in with no expectations and the people don't understand them. They can't understand why people would come in to them as if they were empty handed. If they came looking for oil and gas or for diamonds or for precious gems or to to build something, they would see something, but they see missionaries coming and they think, well, what are they coming for? But missionaries do not come empty handed. They come with the gospel and Paul came in with the gospel and there were results from his preaching. There were many believers at Thessalonica from his preaching. So he did not come in vain to them. In verse two, he speaks about how the gospel came to Thessalonica. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 16. You can look this one up. Acts chapter 16, because this is quite a lengthy piece that we're gonna look at here. So Acts chapter 16, verses six to 10. 
Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After, that, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with them, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. They were called to go to Macedonia. So the straight next verse, therefore they sailing straight from Ross, we went straight through to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. Now they come into Philippi, and we all know the story of what happened to them in Philippi. We know the story of the Philippian jailer. First of all, they go to Philippi, and Lydia is there, and many people receive them. But after that, they have an interaction with a, uh, uh, somebody who had a spirit of divination in them, and we know that they were then taken and beaten and locked up with the Philippian jailer, and that's in verses 16 to 24. Um, we see that, and then from through that 25 through to 34, we know the story of what happened during the night and how the Philippian jailer and his family were saved. But at the end of that, we see in verse 35, and when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But so Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. They didn't sneak away. Many of us, if we'd been treated like that somewhere, we'd have thought, well, let's get out of here as quickly as possible and let's not make a scene. But Paul, as he says, went in with boldness. In verse 2, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. There can't be much more conflict than being taken and beaten and thrown into a prison and putting stocks in the center of the prison. And yet they were bold and they insisted that the magistrates come and take them out. But they did after that go and depart peaceably. But then in chapter 17, verses 1 to 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as is was custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. That's how the gospel came to Thessalonica. 
they were beaten. When they arrived in Thessalonica, they would still have been sore from their beating. They'd also have still been, to some extent, morally outraged that they were beaten and imprisoned as Roman citizens. Now, it says here that they were there for three Sabbaths. I think that actually means that they were in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. I don't believe that they were only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. I think they were there for much longer, and I'll explain that as we come further through the chapter. But then after that, so they came and many people believed, but from verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded became becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had heard, taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They were probably staying at the house of Jason, but they weren't there when the mob came. But Jason was taken and he had to pay a, a security, a surety to say that he wouldn't cause trouble before he was released. And then from verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowd. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So the history of the gospel coming to Thessalonica, but also the fact that the Thessalonians went after them. The Jews that were there went after them when they left and when they went to Berea. They were so critical of Paul and the message that he was bringing that they went after them and they didn't want anyone else to listen to what they were saying. That's the, the background to how the gospel came to Thessalonica. And now the rest of the passage we've got is Paul defending himself because I believe that these were the Jews that now said we can't get him physically anymore. We had him physically in Thessalonica. But he's now left Berea and we're going to attack his character. And they're going to attack from verses three to six. They attack his character and Paul says what he did not do. So these are things that the Jews had said that he did. And Paul is defending himself and saying, I didn't do these things. So there are three accusations in verse three. There's an accusation of error. There's an accusation of uncleanness. And there's an accusation of deceit. So how does Paul defend himself? He didn't. He says, I didn't do these things. I didn't come to you from error or from uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. What do we mean 
by error. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to be at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Here Paul's in Second Timothy giving us warnings about other preachers, but this is what the Jews were saying about him, that he was coming and that what he was telling them was an error. It wasn't true. But as we saw in Acts and as we've read in Timothy, the test is to read the scriptures, to test what is said, to go and test what you're told against what the Bible says and about what Holy Scripture says. Here he's saying, from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Jews could check what was said in the Holy Scriptures and go back and see all of the prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ and how what Paul was saying was that Jesus was the Messiah. He's also accused of uncleanness. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 19 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. When we look at many television evangelists and people like that in the US or other countries, but even many evangelists in our own country have been brought down by the loss of the flesh. And Paul's saying, sorry, Peter's saying that this is a test. When you're looking at somebody, when you're listening to what they're saying, look at their life. Look at how they are. How, are they a slave to the lust of the flesh? Because they promise liberty. And many preachers come along and say, you can get freedom, you can get this. But they themselves are slaves to sin. And then the last one is deceit or guile. What does it mean? Well, the word itself is used twice else in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, and it's speaking about the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. It's the same word, by deceit, by guile, by trickery not honestly not openly they're saying that paul was trying to trick people he was trying to tell them something that wasn't true error that was unclean and that was trickery so don't listen to him this man's message isn't true it's all trickery the other place that it's used used is in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 but we have renounced the hidden things of shame 
not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Again, this is going back to the Bible. There are people who would try and deceive you and trick you by quoting words out of context or verses out of context. I remember speaking to two Mormons and they were quoting a verse from Thessalonians, which they said meant that they could be baptized for their dead relatives and save them. And I said, you're taking it out of context. You have to read it in context. You have to understand what it meant. And what it literally meant was even these people over here who believe this believe in life after death. And it's a bit like me saying, even the SMP believe this when I don't believe anything the SMP believe, but even the SMP believe something. And that's what they're talking about here. So there are people who would walk in craftiness and handle the word of God deceitfully. There's people that will take the Bible and use verses and passages to try and trick people. And Paul's saying, I didn't do any of these things. I didn't have error. I didn't have uncleanness. And I didn't come to you with guile or deceit. Verse 4, he's again defending himself and saying that he was approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Paul was chosen by God, and we know that from Acts chapter 9. It tells us of his conversion. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. I always wonder if that's something like the Langstracht. Was the street actually called Straight? And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And you can understand Ananias. Ananias is saying, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and how he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And when we read our Bible, we can see that he did indeed take the gospel to Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So Paul's saying, I was approved, I was entrusted with the gospel, and I preached a true message, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who tests our hearts. He's saying, you can try me, God can try me. The reason that I came and preached the gospel was to bring the true message. And we need to be careful when we preach that we're bringing the true message. I was down at a Share Africa trustees meeting and uh, Jim McPhail was speaking about going to Zambia and how it was easier to go and preach in Zambia. He says, because I don't feel the same critique. I don't feel that I'm having to worry about what I say in case somebody disagrees with me. I just have the freedom to go and teach the word as I'm led. And when I was reading the, the book on this, they're saying there's three pitfalls of the preacher. Will it please the people? Well, we're not supposed to please the people. The message is supposed to be true and it's supposed to challenge people. 
It's not supposed to please the people. Will it pay me? Unfortunately, I'm not getting paid for this evening, so I don't have to worry about it. But there are preachers who think, well, if they don't like my message, will I get a gift? Um, and will it enhance my reputation? Do I want to be known as a good speaker or a speaker who tells the truth? Verse 5 follows on from that, and it's similar. It's, they're challenging him and saying he used flattering words and a cloak of covetousness. What do we mean by flattering words? Well, we spoke about it when we spoke about guile or deceit. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they mean nothing. They're flattering words. They lift people up, but they don't actually challenge them. Telling people that they're wonderful, that they've got nothing to worry about. Unfortunately, the gospel message isn't like that. The gospel message is very true, very clear, and it's very serious. And it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to be free to tell people that they are a sinner and that they need to be saved. And he speaks about a cloak of covetousness. And it's not a cloak of covetousness for material things, but for glory and for ego. Paul warns us again in Corinthians about ego and glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. I just want to stop there. Can you imagine the challenge of the Corinthian letter being read out for Chloe's household? Chloe's household have written to Paul and complained about the people in the church. And this is what they say about them. Now I say this to eat, that each of you says, I am, Paul, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And Paul's very clear. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's clear. I don't want the glory of you saying, well, we're only here because of Paul. And when we're preaching the gospel, that should be we're trying to make people understand that they need the Lord Jesus Christ, not that they need our message, not that we're any better. We are sinners saved by grace too. We still fail, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. So Paul's saying, I didn't come here and say to you, have this message so that you can follow me. I want you to have this message so that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And further in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness 
in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We need to be careful that we're not trying to use clever arguments. Trying to use the wisdom of men to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose is only to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is saying, I didn't do all these things. I didn't do all these things that I'm accused of. And in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. What he's saying is, we didn't seek the glory. In 3 John, verses 9 to 12, John writes, I wrote to the church, but Diophanes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds when he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, but forbids those who wish to, forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Here we're warned again about preeminence and about taking decisions. There's been many churches where somebody has taken the preeminence and made decisions for the church which are not following God's word. And here, John is clear. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So there has to be a question about Diotrephes, whether he was truly a Christian, given the fact that he was trying to exclude people. Visiting preachers need to be willing to embrace different households. There's no divas when you're visiting a place. I remember speaking with Stephen Grant. He was staying with us. And he said, it's, it's interesting when you have to come and stay with people because you have to get used to their households. And he says, but to me, he says, as we said to him, he says, well, you're getting an ensuite and there's good Wi-Fi. He says, that's better than anything I could ask for. So they need to be careful that you're not one to be a diva and you make demands. And I, I, I know a good story. There's, there's a, a pop band who always made a set of demands. And a lot of them were about health and safety. But one of the demands that they put in the middle was that they needed a bowl of M&Ms in the place and they wanted no brown M&Ms. And I thought, well, that's been a bit of a diva saying, well, you've got to sit and pick all the brown M&Ms out. But what they said was when they walked in and looked at the bowl, if there was brown M&Ms in it, they knew fine that they hadn't read everything else and there was a real concern around their health and safety. So they weren't being divas. There was a reason behind it. But visiting preachers shouldn't be divas. They shouldn't be demanding of what they want. So verses 3 to 6, as we've covered, Paul is explaining what he did not do. And now from verses 7 to 12, he explains what he did do. So verse 7, But we were gentle among you, just as nursing, a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Numbers 11 and 12, Moses speaks like saying, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child? That's the example of what Paul was doing for the Thessalonians, 
carrying them in his bosoms as a guardian carries a nursing child. And in Galatians, we have my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. These are pictures of a parent with a child. A nanny will look after children, but a mother is willing to give up everything for them. Now, it's a generalization. Not all mothers are, but most mothers who are close to their children will willing to give up everything for them. And it just brought to mind the example that Christ gave in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Paul wasn't just somebody who was going about preaching the gospel for his own ends because then he wouldn't care about the Thessalonians. He cared about them as his own children. So he says, I care about you so much as my own children. And he says in verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. They gave of themselves. They committed themselves. They suffered, as we've read, to bring the gospel to Macedonia. And I just think of all the missionaries that go into far lands, and they labor for many years, longing to see the fruit of their labors. And we will only know when we come into heaven what the impact we have had on other people. So they, they labored and they gave of their own lives. And in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. No 40-hour week for them, or 37 and a half, depending on who you work for now. They worked day and night, not just the gospel, but working to support themselves. In the Jewish culture, a father's duty was to teach his son the scriptures, but also to teach them a trade so that they could support themselves. Paul had been taught to be a tent maker, making tents from goat hair. It wasn't easy work. It was hard work. And yet, he had a right to be supported. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does drink, not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? It's Paul saying, well, I'm entitled to these things because I'm working for you. And he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endured all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying he was entitled to be supported by them, but he hadn't relied on that because he didn't want to have an action against them. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. We're all commanded to preach the gospel, to go out and tell everyone else. And this is what Paul's saying. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. So Paul's saying, I had the right to all of this. And I remember speaking to Gordon McCracken at one of the Bible exhibitions, and he was saying that when he got a brand new car, there was a criticism of him about having a brand new car from somebody who had a brand new car. And you think, really? Given the mileage that Gordon did, given how far he traveled, it makes sense to have a brand new car. And it's a necessity. It's not uh, uh, to, to glorify himself. It was a necessity. The last thing, would you rather he ran about the country and broke down all the time and couldn't fulfill his obligations? So what Paul's saying is that when people are working for you, and we need to remember that about full-time workers, they need to be supported. We have an obligation to support them. Then Philippians also said, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church with, shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's another reason that I think that they were there for much longer than three Sabbaths. They received two gifts while they were there from Philippi. From the believers in Philippi, they sent through two gifts to Paul and Silas when they were in Thessalonica. And I was reading, and it's amazing the things that you read, but I was reading on the news channel about a pastor in a Pentecostal church in Missouri, and he stood up and berated his congregation for not buying him a Movado watch. And what he said was, you can buy a Movado watch in Sam's, which is equivalent of Argos. And you all know I asked for a one last year. Here it is the whole way in August, and I still ain't got it. The watch costs about £300. Imagine saying, come on, I'm a preacher and you haven't even bought me a watch, demanding that. So it's right that we support full-time workers in the work that we do. To see a pastor demanding a fancy watch is another thing. So we're warned again by Paul that these things are to test the preachers that come amongst you. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. And actually five times in the passage, 
Paul calls them to acknowledge that they know him. He says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. In verse 2, he says, um, As you know, we were bold in our God. In verse 5, uh, Neither at any time did we use flattening words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. And here in verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also. So he's not just calling on them to be witnesses, but also God also. And then in verse 11, he says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted. Again, that tells me that they weren't just three Sabbaths in Thessalonica, that it must have been three Sabbaths in the synagogue, and then a longer period. It takes much longer to understand somebody's character than three weeks. And what he's saying here is, you know my character, you know what I'm like. You have history with me. These people are coming amongst us and saying, I did all these things. And here's why I did all these things. And they're not true. And they're not right. And he's saying, you know me. You know my history. You know how I came here. You know me personally. Um, it's a real challenge for ourselves. How quick are we at times, despite knowing somebody for years, to accept a rumor and to gossip about them? And that's a real challenge because we should know people's character if we've known them for a long time. Verse 11, charged every one of you as a father does his own children. He knows each individual one and they're all different. I have three children and thankfully they're all different. Um, there are unique drivers and we understand that when we work in a business, there are unique drivers to our staff, to the people that we work with. There are some people that are driven by money. There are some people that are driven by a thank you all the time or by status. And Paul says, I know you all. I know you all and I've charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And then his wish, the same wish that all Christian parents have for their children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here's Paul. He's defended himself and he said... These are the things that I didn't do, that I've been accused of. And these are the things that I did do. And the last one is that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Thank you. We'll just close with a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you this evening. We just think of the passage that we've covered. We just think of the challenges for us to use the scriptures to test what is said. To make sure that when we're preaching, we are preaching of you and not of ourselves for our own glory. And to test those who come and listen. And to make sure that we know who are true and who are false teachers. Father, we just give thanks for this teaching for us. And for your word and for all we can learn further. We ask this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now our closing hymn is hymn number